at this time, the kids and youth are invited to go to classes. Touche. Um, yep. So a few months ago, when we mapped out this sermon series, um, we picked this passage. Well, I didn't really pick this passage. Um, it was a naturally flowing passage, and I titled the sermon, Good News for the Dead. Um, and it's, it's, it's going to be a hard sermon. Um, I was, uh, I don't even know where to start. Um, so what's interesting is I was looking for kind of a psalm or a verse to kind of encompass <laughs> all the emotions that I'm sure a lot of us are, are feeling, um, especially with um, Ezra's passing. And as the spirit would work, um, couldn't find anything that tickled my fancy. Um, but then I found this scene actually in the book of Ezra which I took as a gift from God. Um, in Ezra chapter three, uh, Zerubbabel is kind of appointed the governor and leader and, and he's sent by the king of Babylon to kind of uh, bring the exiles back, right? So after they've been in captivity, um, Zerubbabel is, is supposed to bring the exiles back and he's an interesting character in that even though his name literally means planted in Babylon and he represents that generation, um, we believe, scholars believe, that he's actually still of the line of David and Solomon. So that's part of the reason he's appointed. And, and so these exiles who've lost their land, they've seen the temple destroyed, they've been in captivity. Um, when they come back, though, they come back with hope. And, and the hope they come back with is all the promises God had made, especially through the prophets. Promises that, you know, one day the Messiah will come promises that the temple will not just be rebuilt, but, but God would be with them in the temple. Promises that when the kingdom is established, it won't just be, you know, for Israel, but it'll actually be a nation of every tribe, every nation, every tongue. The kingdom will be established for everyone. And, and so Zerubbabel gets the people together and they, they build the altar and, and they get back to business as usual. They have their sacrifices, they're worshiping as they used to worship. In fact, they even celebrate Sukkot, which is the, the, the festival of the, the booths or the festival of the tabernacle, which kind of represented this, this increasingly dual reality of thank God for the harvest. Thank God for all the work we've done. Thank God for everything that we've put our, our blood and soil into this, 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 our blood and tears into this soil, and, and we can give God thanks for this. But the, the, the festival of, of Tabernacle also came to represent the Exodus. Thank God for saving us. Thank God for redeeming us from slavery. Thank God for his presence with us. So, so in this scene in, in Exodus chapter 3, it's a very, very interesting, tricky, fascinating, um, weird, whatever word you want to use, scene. Because they, they rebuilt the temple and they have this dedication service. Yet in this dedication service, you have a lot of the people who are, are shouting praises to the Lord. But at the same time, you have this joy that's met with just a, a heaviness, and it's mixed with weeping and deep weeping. You have people who are praising God because the temple was back. We're back. The temple is back. 
But then you had a little bit of the older people who've been there a while, the elders, the priests, the Levites, the, the heads of families who are all weeping. And it's so loud that the, the scripture says it's indistinguishable. And now people have wondered why are they weeping. Some thought maybe it's just nostalgic. Right? It's just like, man, we had the temple when we were little. Now we got this thing. It's just I miss the old one. Some people think maybe it was not as great as Solomon's temple, you know. It's one thing when Solomon's believed to be one of the richest person in the world, you know, and built a temple. And it's another thing when a bunch of exiles built a temple. But some people think it's, it's maybe a numb reminder of everything they had lost. The longer we live, the more of life we see, the more we sometimes lose. And we remember the pain. We remember those who've gone on. But then there's even more astute people who read that passage and said, maybe they cried. Because when we had the tabernacle, when we had the first temple, God's presence was among us. Yet nowhere in Ezra 3 does Ezra the scribe, does Ezra the prophet, does Ezra the historian mention God's presence. And maybe they're weeping because they didn't feel God's presence among them. I don't know if they cried because the new temple wasn't the old temple. But I was thinking about this scene where they gathered to worship and joy and weeping was loud that you couldn't tell the difference. And it reminded me, and I hope it reminds you, that we can worship with light and with heavy hearts. That no matter what we feel, no matter what we're going through, we can still worship the Lord. Rich Mullins is one of my favorites, and he has a song, Hold Me Jesus, that I played on repeat a lot last night. My favorite line in that song is he asks, Jesus, you have been my king of glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? You know, oftentimes at the door, I tell people, you know, like, oh, good sermon. I was like, actually, I feel like God was preaching to me. You know, I, I kind of feel like you guys get the remnants, but I get the good stuff. Because I really feel like God is preaching to me. And I think people give me that look like, oh, he's just saying that. Well, I guarantee you this morning that, that this sermon is just as much for me as it is for any of us. Because I think we need to hear this morning that God sees our grief. That God sees our pain. That God sees our suffering. That God honors our loss. And in that, we need to be reminded that God is moved to compassion to act on our behalf when he sees this pain. I think we also need to be reminded that though we grieve death, we're not like those who grieve without hope. And I think even in this hardness, we can still praise God. Because we still serve a God who raises the dead to life. And that's what this passage is about. And maybe, just maybe, the Spirit had it perfectly planned for us. If you have your Bibles, turn with me in Luke chapter 7. 
I'll be reading verses 11 to 17. We'll also have it up front. You can follow there as well. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nine, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. Some translation says, he was moved with compassion. And he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier. They were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Let's pray. Father and God, we thank you this morning that you see us. That whether our hearts are light or heavy, whether our pain is, is ever present or, or still hanging on in numbness, God, you see us and we thank you that we worship the God who sees. Not only do we worship the God who sees, but we have the God who holds us, our Prince of Peace, who not only lets us rest in the arms of the Father, but gives us the Holy Spirit to remind us of God's presence that gives us the sisters and brothers and community to remind us of God's presence, not just in us, but among us, that gives us the, the stories and, and the testimony and the witnesses of how God is moving on our behalf. Lord, we thank you that you not only see us and move for us and hold us, but Lord, you hear us. You hear us. So we pray, Lord, for your comfort on the Zook family, for your comfort on us as a community. But may we be reminded that in all things, we still serve and worship and hold on to the God who raises dead to life. In your name we pray, amen. The passage right before this is the, the passage of, of the centurion. And in that passage, you see this man who is outside of the kingdom of Israel, who maybe never fully commits to Judaism, but is all in on Jesus Christ. And that story, as we told it, you see that Jesus is amazed by the faith. In fact, Luke notes that Jesus says, I've never seen such faith in all of Israel. And, and so you move immediately from that story where Jesus is amazed by uh, the, the faith of the centurion, to now where Jesus' faith is the one that's amazing. Because in this story, everyone thought the dead was dead. Everyone thought the story was over. And it's only the faith of Jesus that amazes us because only he believed that he could bring the dead to life. Now, the setting of the story is nine, which is a small, uh, the, the funny thing about nine is that it means beautiful, but no one tells us why it's beautiful, so we're just going to go with it. 
But it's this small Galilean village about five miles from, from Nazareth, five, six miles from Nazareth, which means that these were very much local people. This is probably people who not just heard of Jesus, but it's not wild for us to think that he had family members or, or friends who could have been from this nine. So they leave the centurion, and they, they, they're now walking towards, and the first cast of characters we meet is Jesus, Lord and Savior, hi. But you also meet the disciples. And the scripture, Luke tells us, there's a large crowd with Jesus. It makes sense. We just had this miracle on the road to the, the centurion's house. And the word of Jesus and what Jesus is doing is spreading. So you have this whole crowd that's with him. And as he's walking to nine, he comes upon the real stars of the show. Which I think is interesting that the real stars of the show are the man who's dead. And his mother, the widow. And what's interesting is as he's walking up, he sees this, this funeral procession. Now, now, obviously, interrupting any kind of funeral was not okay, right? Obviously, that's a breach of the law. It's a breach of protocol. Most of all, it's a breach of common sense, right? If people are grieving, give them space to grieve. But what's fascinating about this is that not only is interrupting uh, the, the funeral a breach, but the law was very strict on this, in fact, if you weren't a close relative, and some would even say a close relative that was designated to treat the body, you not only could not interrupt the funeral, you certainly couldn't walk up on people, you couldn't touch the funeral beer, and you definitely couldn't touch the dead person. Why? Because you were then considered unclean. You touched the funeral beer, <coughs> excuse me, that's one day of, of uncleanness that you need to be washed from. If you touch the dead person without being designated, that's seven days. So this is what's happening in the person. So when Jesus walks up, a lot of times we read this story, it's like, well, it's Jesus. He's going to do whatever he wants. But this is the, 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 the scene that he's walking into. To even touch the beer, to touch the person was up to a week of being designated unclean. Also interesting, Luke points out that not only did Jesus have a crowd with him, but that the, the, the funeral also had a large crowd. Now, this makes sense because we don't think Nain was a big village. In fact, it was a very small village. So there's a good chance that if it's a, a woman was widowed, that they would have grieved with her. If this was her only son, that they would have grieved with her. And so it's not that uncommon that in a setting like this, while the family is grieving, that the whole town would drop what they're doing. Think about this for compassion. They would drop what they're doing to go and grieve with them. And a lot of us who are now, you know, thousands of years removed, we also get cynical because we're like, well, they also had professional criers, you know, people who just weep and wail, right? But I've been thinking about how there's a grace in that. Not only would these people would come in and weep with you, and yes, they would be loud and, and somewhat annoying, right? But I love that they would yell so loudly that the people who are grieving had space to grieve. A lot of times in our culture, we think about grieving, we got to have it all together, right? Like you're in pain, but you got to have it all together. But now if you pay somebody to just yell and weep and well, you don't have to have it all together because at least you're not that person, right? I think there's a grace in that. And I thought about how when my Aunt Evelyn died, I was a little boy and we're trying to, this first time cancer really hit me and we're trying to like figure out what do we do in this. And I remember at the scene, we had an Aunt Rita. We ain't pay her, but we should have. Right? Like I remember Aunt Rita was yelling and screaming. And my favorite part, I still remember this. I was like 9 or 10 years old. She's like, let me go with her. And my Aunt Amelia, in one fribber, I was like, let her go. <laughs> you know, if she wants to go, let her go. And, and, and even though we had all these complex emotions of grief, we all started laughing. And that was a little bit of grace. 
right? That, that was a little bit of grace. Because if you know my Aunt Amelia, you know she wasn't saying that to be funny. She was dead serious. You know, like, like she wasn't like, ooh, let me crack up the kids. Like, she, like, she want to go, let her go. You know, like, we all believe in Jesus. We'll see her again, right? But I think there's a grace there. As the town dropped everything they're doing to support the lady, as people would be paid to, yes, mourn with her. And also you have to remember that the reason the crowd would get bigger and bigger is because they're marching from their home to probably the family plot. We don't read in the text that he was wrapped. So it's easy for us then to, to make the conclusion that the death was recent. In that it probably just happened maybe even under 24 hours. And maybe even that afternoon, if to be real. Like, because what was happening here is that the people were still gathering the spices, gathering the wrapping, gathering to go to the family burial plot. And so it's in the midst of this that Jesus sees her. The, the, the man is not wrapped. Right? There's no spices, no preparation. And they're going to the family plot. And then we get this word, or we get this word from Luke when he says, when the Lord saw her, and again, the NIV lets us down because it says, his heart went out to her. What does that even mean? The older traditions or the older translations will say, he was moved with compassion. And I think that's interesting because Jesus sees the widow even with the crowds. A reminder to us that no matter how wild this world gets, no matter what's happening all around us, Jesus sees us. Jesus sees your pain. Jesus sees your grief. No matter the crowd around him and behind him and in front of him, he sees her. And then it says Jesus is moved with compassion. What's interesting is that Luke 7.13, the, the, the Luke the historian, Luke the doctor, Luke the, the, the investigator, he says when the Lord saw her. Why is that important? This is the first time in the book of Luke that he calls Jesus Lord. That probably means something. The word in Greek is, is kurios, right? It, it meant that you were the master, meaning that you own everything. It meant that perhaps you were a monarch or king, which means that you're the decider of all things that is. But also to the ancient Jews who were waiting on the promised Messiah that they didn't get in the days of Ezra and Zerubbabel. That they didn't get in the days of Isaiah and Jeremiah. That they didn't get in the days of Maccabees' rebellion. Those who were waiting for the Messiah, Lord or Kyrios, also meant Messiah, which means Savior. For the first time, with death at his doorsteps, Luke says, the Lord saw her, the master of the universe, the owner, decider of all things, the king, the Messiah, sees our pain. The word he used here is splachnitzomai. You got to say it quick because it sounds like you're sneezing. And this word is fascinating. Noted BIC scholar Linda Gephardt says this. I'm dead serious. This is some of the best work I've ever seen on this word. You think I'm joking? I'm dead serious. She says, the, the, the way we need to understand this word is that Jesus was moved with compassion. 
Other scholars will say splachnar, or the, the, the base word of the verb, actually had to do with your heart, your lungs, your liver, your inner beings. That the Greeks, will join Linda, the Greeks believed that the, the, the bowels were where you held your deep emotions. So the idea that he's moved with compassion meant that Jesus had a visceral reaction to all that's happening. Why is that important? Those of us who've been around church long enough, we tend to think it's compassion is automatic. That God is love, of course he's going to be compassionate. That that's what God is. God is just going to be compassionate. But this story kind of spits in the eye of that because this story tells us, no, no, no. When you grieve, God is moved. When you're in pain, God is moved. When you're suffering, God is moved. It's not automatic. It's something that comes deep down from the inner being of Jesus. This word is used 12 times in the New Testament. Three times is with parables. The unmerciful servant, the one who had a debt so big that, that, that the, the master, the owner, the Lord, is moved with compassion to forgive him. And then he doesn't forgive his person who owed him debt. The other two ones are, is the paraton of, of the, 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 the Samaritan, right? Where he's what? He's moved with compassion when he sees the suffering of someone else. And that compassion moves him not just to feeling but to act on his behalf. We also see this in the parable of the lost sons, right? Where when the younger son comes back, the father is moved to compassion and runs after his son and says, you belong to me. Every other time it's used in the gospel, it's for Jesus. And you can argue in all those stories, the master, the owner, the Lord, the curios is who but Jesus. But the other nine times specifically named Jesus is when he sees people suffering, he's moved to act. When he sees people hungry, he's moved to act. When he sees people blind, he's moved to make them see. When they are mute, he makes them walk. When they're dead, he raises them up. We serve a God who's moved by our suffering. We serve a God who's moved to action. That God's compassion isn't just what we feel. It must be what we do. It must be what we do. And, and so in the midst of all of this, Jesus has this visual reaction to the woman's death. And he walks over to her, forgetting protocol, forgetting the law, forgetting common sense etiquette even. He walks up to her and he says, don't cry. And he turns to the young man and says, young man, I say to you, get up. Now, I think Luke is a historian. I think Luke is a physician. I think Luke is a, is a very good investigative reporter and writer and journalist. But what I wasn't prepared for is that Luke is also a stand-up comic. Because I was looking for something deep in this, and I couldn't help but laugh in the midst of all the grief that's happening. Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. That's funny. Right? Like, Jesus heals them. You expect everyone to be like, wow, this is amazing. Praise the Lord. Luke goes, no, no, y'all don't understand. The dead man started talking. Right? And if you didn't get the joke before, he finishes what? And Jesus gave him back to his mother. <laughs> right? It's just like, like Luke is in the midst of all this heaviness. There's a little bit of levity here because after Jesus heals again, what I love about this is that Jesus' healing work isn't something that's strenuous to him. Isn't something that's hard to him. Isn't something that, that like, you know, it's just like, I, I'm going to fight to do it. He just does it. And the dead man starts talking. And then he says, well, now you got to go back to your mother. Maybe he still had chores to do. I don't no, but Jesus gave him back to his mother. And what's the aftermath here? 
is that all, both crowds, the one who was with Jesus walking up to nine and the one who was with the mother walking down to the funeral to the burial plot, they were all filled with awe. And they all praised the Lord. In fact, they said a great prophet has appeared among us. One of the things about the ancients is that they not just knew their history. Their history wasn't just in books. It was alive and well with them. They lived their history. They, they believed that, yes, like what happened in the days of Elijah and Elisha, that's what's happening today. So that's what they have in mind when they named Jesus a prophet here. They remembered the Old Testament when God through the prophet Elijah and Elisha did what? Raised people from the dead, including a widow's son. This history was real to them. And they're like, oh, my goodness, we've got a new Elijah. we got a new Elisha. The prophet is with us. But then they also said God has come to help his people because it wasn't just a prophet. It was the idea that God himself was so present among them that God has come to help. What a blessing in our times of struggle. What a blessing in our seasons of grief. What a blessing as we think about all the losses we've suffered, all the things that have been so hard and heavy, that God is here to help. And because of this, news about Jesus spread throughout the region. Now, we call this good news for the dead. What is the good news we can pull from this passage? Well, I think the first one, I've said it over and over and over. And if you've heard nothing this morning, hear this. God sees you. God knows your grief. God knows your suffering. God knows your loss. And the God we serve not only sees it, but he's willing to hold you and promise his presence, and to lead you through it all. And not only does he see it, but the God who sees is moved to compassion to act on your behalf. I love this story because the faith of the people isn't what moved Jesus to act. God working in your life, God working on your behalf, is not dependent on how faithful you are. Praise God for that. God doing the miraculous, God healing the, the lame and, and making the, the blind see and the mute talk and, and, and people walk and the dead rising is not dependent on their faith, not dependent on their faithfulness. It's simply dependent on God who is faith, who is faithfulness, who is compassion, who is love, who is grace, who is mercy. And, and I love that not only does God see our pain, our grief, our suffering, our loss, not only does God act on our behalf, but we serve an empathetic God. It's not a lost upon Luke, and may it not be lost upon us, that maybe this is the first time that we see Jesus move with compassion in the book of Luke, because a couple years later, down the road, Jesus would be the eldest son of a widowed mother. Let it not be lost upon us that perhaps in looking at this woman with her son, Jesus is thinking about his mother Mary, who would have to take him to the family lot, hopefully, but who would have to take him and prepare his body, who would have to take him to his deathbed, who would have to bury her son. 
I don't think it's a coincidence that this is the first time we see Jesus move with compassion. But let it encourage us that God not only sees what we go through, but God truly feels it and experiences it himself. Let that be a blessing to us. We don't just say we're not alone. Jesus doesn't just say, you know, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He doesn't leave us or forsake us. He's with us always. And sometimes he understands the grief, the sorrow, the suffering, the loss, the pain. Sometimes he might understand it even better than us. Praise God, we serve an empathetic God. And so the good news for the dead and for those of us who are grieving or starting this grieving process and those of us who if we think back the last two, three years, we've lost so much and so many people who mean to us, so much to us. May we be reminded that those who know Jesus now rest with Jesus. It's one thing to say the world is not as it should be. But may we never forget the world to come is greater than this world ever will be. It's one thing to say they're not suffering anymore. But it's another thing to rejoice because they're not only not suffering, they're with the Prince of Peace. The God of glory, the Lord, Master, Kyrios, the one who loves them more deeply than we ever can. And Paul writes to the Thessalonians, and he reminds us of this second point. That though we grieve, we who know Jesus are not without hope. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he says, brethren, or, or brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. We know, we who know Jesus grieve, but not without hope. But praise God that not just in the second coming, not just in the end of this world, but praise God that today, today, right now in this moment, our God is still raising dead to life. And, and so the question for us becomes, what is dead inside of us that Jesus can bring to life? Is your heart heavy and broken this morning? I want to invite you to bring that heavy, broken heart to the Lord. For only the Lord can begin your healing. Is your soul restless and looking for a home and finding peace that never comes and, and praying for rest that never comes and praying for just God's presence that you don't feel even right now? I want to invite you to give God not just another chance, but to say, God, I got nowhere else to go but to you. God, I have nowhere else to run but to you. And God, I'm trying my best, but will you be like the father in the parable of the lost sons? Will you come and get me? I think sometimes it's okay to ask God to come and get us. Because we're reaching and we don't know how far we got to reach. We don't know how far we got to go. We don't even know if we're there. 
And it's one thing to trust that God is with us. It's another thing to say, God, I've tried my best. Please come get me now. And guess what? He will. He will. The invitation for all of us this morning is an invitation to invite Jesus in. We live in a society, a culture, a world that wants us to mask our pain. And it eats us up and it's not healthy for any of us. We live in a society and culture and world that wants us to to act like we got it together. You don't have to. Because you don't. And that's okay. We live in a society and culture where we see death and destruction, and it's easy to think that's what's winning. Not just now, but in the end. But praise God. Because our God promises to raise the dead to life. And I don't think that's just an end time promise. I don't think that's just a second coming promise. I think those things that have died inside of us, those pains that we hold on to, the grief that we hold on to, And sometimes it's not even just the grief of people that we've lost. It might be the grief of positions we've lost, grief of uh, of relationships we've lost, grief of status we've lost. Whatever grief you're holding on to, invite Jesus in. Invite Jesus in. I think we're going to (laughs) close. I'd like to invite up the worship team. We're going to... Um, end with this song, Great Are You, Lord. But I was thinking about, um, as we sing this song, I was thinking about um, a Henry Nouwen quote about compassion. And Nouwen talks about the compassion of God not just being great, not just being present, not just being available, but how in the compassion of God, God meets us, God holds us, and God carries us. So as we sing this song about the Lord's greatness, May we be reminded that not only can we invite Jesus into our pain and suffering, but Jesus is already there waiting for us to ask for help. Let's stand and sing together.
one of my favorite poets um, is the, the absolutely brilliant Worsen Shire. Um, she's a Somali um, lady who was born in Kenya and then grew up in the UK. So I like that, you know. Um, I, I, one of my favorite poems by her has this, and I wanted to use this for the benediction. Um, and, and so this is an interesting poem because some people say, well, I don't feel this, you know. Like, I don't feel what she's feeling right now. I just want to remind us that, you know, artists are just trying to paint the picture, you know. Um, and so you might not perfectly feel all of this, but I think it's important for us to remember. It's a poem of, of thanksgiving. It's a poem for gratefulness. It's a poem that, that invites us to stop looking out and to be thankful for what's within. Um, Shire writes this. The sun is perfect, and you woke this morning. You have enough language in your mouth to be understood. You have a name, and someone wants to call it. You have five fingers on your hand and someone wants to hold it. If we just start there, every beautiful thing that has and will ever exist is possible. If we start there, everything for a moment is right in the world. Our God has blessed us with so much. And sometimes life makes it hard to see. Sometimes sorrow makes it hard to find the joy. Sometimes the hard things that we go through, the heaviness that we carry, it takes us off of our God and the ways he's blessed us and onto those things. But in all season, our God is with us. And I love that it's November, but it's going to be 60 odd degrees today. I love that the sun is out. I love that we're here, that we're breathing. I love that we can look in each other in the eyes. I love that God is not just real, but God is ours too. And I love that our God promises not just in the end to raise us to new life, but even today, that those dead spots, those dead things, those grief, those sorrows that we hold on to, we can invite him in. And perhaps today is the day of our salvation. Amen. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much that you're the God who sees us. So, Lord, we come before you with our burdens to be unburdened, with our sorrows to be met with your joy, with our grief to be met with your not only mourning but your healing. Lord, we come to you grateful that you not only see us, but in our pain, in our suffering, in our loneliness, in our forsakenness. Lord, you promise to be with us. You promise to hold us. We thank you that you are indeed the king of glory. We thank you that you're indeed the prince of peace. And we thank you that the king of glory, the prince of peace, the Lord, the master, the curios, the owner of this entire universe sees us, holds us, and carries us. So, Lord, we bless you this morning. We give you all the praise. And we thank you that we have a life to look forward to in the end when you raise all dead to life. We thank you that we have a life to look forward to today. Because you take the deadness that's inside of us and make newness of life out of it. And we praise you for all the ways you've done that in our past already. God, we love you and we thank you for loving us. God, we see you and we thank you for seeing us. God, we hold on to you and thank you that you've never left us or forsaken us. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen. God bless you all. Have a good week.